Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. On an earlier Smart Talk, we discussed recent changes to how and where wine and beer are sold in Pennsylvania, a shift that is receiving mostly positive feedback. However, there's a responsibility that comes with drinking. When someone drinks and gets behind the wheel of a car, tragedy often strikes. With that in mind, Governor Tom Wolf just signed a bill into law which requires many first-time DUI offenders to have ignition interlocks installed in their cars to keep them from drinking and then driving. Chris and Susan Demko join me today to discuss their support for this law. For the Demkos, this issue is a personal one. In 2014, their 18-year-old daughter, Meredith, was killed in an accident involving a drunk driver. In the wake of their loss, the couple founded Pennsylvania Parents Against Impaired Driving. The organization, joined by other families who have lost loved ones at the hands of drunk drivers, raises awareness on the issue and lobbies the legislature for expanded DUI penalties. Chris and Susan Demko, welcome to the program. Good morning. Good morning. Also joining us is Eileen Lee, director of the Internet uh, the Ignition Interlock Quality Assurance with the PUI, uh, excuse me, the Pennsylvania DUI Association. Ms. Lee, welcome to the program. Thank you. Good morning. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. In particular, what we're looking for is what you think of Pennsylvania's driving under the influence laws, should they be tougher? What do you have in mind? What do you think the penalty should be? How far do we go? How tough do we go? 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Mr. and Mrs. Demko, first of all, thank you very much for uh, for doing this this morning. I know this can't be easy and I uh, want to say I'm sorry for your loss of, uh, of Meredith. Tell me about Meredith, though. I mean, I, we have a, a, a photograph of her on her website, and uh, she was a beautiful young woman, but uh, talk about Meredith growing up. Okay, um, Meredith was her baby, and she was a little bit younger than her brother and sister. Meredith was the child that always had a smile on her face. Um, she was always excited to see you. She was always willing to engage, especially as a younger child. Um, she was studious. Uh, she looked up to her brother and sister, as frustrating as they could be to her, but she still loved <laughs> That's them. That's what older siblings exactly. always do. I was the right. youngest. I was the same one. <laughs> um, so she was a good student. She, she always took her studies seriously. Um, she also strongly believed in diversity, and she was always looking out for people that um, were different and different from her, and she was always um, open to that. Right. So, she always tried to include everybody in um, any activity that she was doing. What kind of activities? What did she like? Uh, she, it, it was funny. She was always into, um, we always used to tease her. She always was out in the yard doing the baton. Oh, yeah. Um, and um, <laughs> she loved art. So she, in her high school years, she just really enjoyed being in the art club and doing different things now, with that. Where did she go to high school? Um L.S. Lamb Peter Strasburg High School, right in Lancaster County. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And so, in in 2014, she had just graduated high school. Yes. What were her college plans? Um, she was going to go to your sinus in the fall. Um, but she had applied to so many colleges because um, I think, and I let her because she had just worked so hard through high school, 
to um, be able to go to a good college and to figure out what she wanted to do. And uh, so we had gone to a lot of colleges, and she loved her sinus. Mm. So she was all set. Um, what was she going to major in? She was undecided. Um, we were kind of steering her away from art, <laughs> even though she loved it. But uh, coming from two business backgrounds, we thought, well, there, there's more of a future in the business than in the art. It was going to be harder. But um, I think she probably might have even gone into art therapy. Uh-huh. She enjoyed that. Yeah. So uh, she was uh, thinking about uh, going to your site. She had j just graduated uh, yes. high In school. Yes, yeah, like right. two weeks before, two to three weeks before, right. I guess. So let's go to uh, July 8th. Um, this is when she was in a crash. And, uh, you, know, I, 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 you know, I hate these kind of questions. But, you know, it's, it's the kind of phone call that every parent, it's, it's like your worst nightmare. But how were you informed that uh, Meredith was in a crash? Um, well, it's weird because um, I had asked my neighbor who had four kids who were all old, older than my kids, and I said, I'm so worried when they're driving. And she, I remember her saying, don't worry, Susan, if something happens, you'll get the call. And, um, but I, to me, I always thought, okay, I'd get the call after 11 p.m. Yeah, we all picture that, the middle of the night. <clears throat> exactly, That's the worst scenario. exactly. Yeah. And I was at work, and I got the call um, from West Lampeter Police at 2 o'clock in the afternoon on a beautiful sunny day, um, no bad road conditions or anything. And the officer verified who I was, and he asked that I come to uh, Lancaster General because my daughter Meredith had been in a car accident and I needed to come to the emergency right away. So um, I just flew out the door at the office and I drove to the hospital. And I um, went through the emergency room and um, at this point I knew nothing that was going on. So I gave them my name and out came the chaplain. And I said to the chaplain who I was and that I really didn't need her but I needed to see my daughter and the doctor. And she said, we need to talk. And she asked me where my husband was, and um, he had been in New Jersey and Philadelphia that day, and she wanted me to call him and to tell him that Meredith had been in an accident, but not to tell him that she had died because we didn't want him driving to the hospital and circumstances went through the day. Chris couldn't get there until about two hours later. And I sat with the chaplain, the doctors came in, um, and it was the weirdest feeling because you're in the emergency room and the emergency room is silent. And all the doctors and nurses are looking at you. And, um, that was how I got the call. When you say that uh, they didn't want you to tell your husband that she had died, I'm, I'm assuming that that's not how she told you she had passed. No, no. Um, what happened was um, they had just said that she had been in a bad car crash and um, that she hadn't made it. So I then asked, what about the other driver? And she said, I can't tell you anything about the other driver because 
I had wanted to know if they had died also. And she said she couldn't disclose that information. Mm. So, Chris, when you got to the hospital and you found out, mm. uh, obviously this is a, 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 a tragedy, when did you find out that the other driver was drunk and was high on heroin? I actually don't remember if I knew about it at the hospital. No, the, um, the police came later okay. that night to our home um, because they had never seen anything like this. Yeah, and what do you mean? What do you uh, mean? They said they had never seen anything like this. I think just the severity of the crash and um, who the driver was. Mm-hmm. So, Chris, I mean, yeah. You. Um, it, it, what I remember when the police came to the house and when they described kind of the events and what happened, uh, it was somewhat shocking to us, other than obviously, you know, okay, the guy was drunk, he was high on heroin, allegedly at that time. Um, what they conveyed is this guy was a known issue in the in the community. And it was somewhat frustrating to think, this individual is known in the community as being a problem, but yet he's driving on a suspended license and broad daylight. So it, it, that was the first inkling of saying, well, what's wrong here? You know, the individual's known as being a problem, and he's just driving between his car of his somebody that a car of his girlfriend then the car of his mother so it's it seemed to me at that time thinking something's wrong here so So, i mean obviously you were very angry on top of your grief that you know this guy was on the road exactly exactly how can somebody with such a long history of a suspended license still be driving and to make it worse his mother gave him her car to drive uh, it was well publicized, got a lot yes. of attention, uh, like 10 days later, that the two of you wrote a letter uh, to LNP, Lancaster newspaper, yes. uh, that was at the top of page yeah. one, uh, and very heartfelt, and just got a lot of attention, uh, a lot of people in the community reading it. What made you do that? Um, what we found days following the loss of Meredith, um, picking up the paper, There was an article that was done by Lancaster newspaper that talked about some of the other tragedies that had occurred over the past two years. And reading those and reading some of the other stories, it it really hit us to say, this is too frequent of an event. This is just Lancaster County, so it's one of many. Um, I think there were two or three cases over the past 24 months before where you you had repeat, suspended, uh, and what I would call bad situations and people that clearly had no right to be driving. Um, we realized then there was something wrong, you know, and, and coupled with the fact that people know this guy was driving in our case, um, we just felt that something had to be done or at least somebody had to, it was a point to start focusing on it. And additionally on the letter, the other thing is the Lancaster community was so kind to us, you know, our neighbors, our employers people that didn't we didn't even know um so you know that letter was really twofold one was really to thank the community um we had started up a um a fund a scholarship fund at the high school and you know the money we received um so it the, so as i was saying it's a twofold letter it was really a thank you and it was also to say to the community look let's focus on this because this is a serious issue and more people are going to get killed 
And that's really was the genesis. It's, it's one thing, though, to write a letter and point this out. But it's another to take the next step and decide that uh, you're going to become active in campaigning for better, more up-to-date uh, DUI laws in, in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. When did you make that decision, and what made you make that decision? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess, to me, just writing a letter... I needed to follow through, or we needed to follow through. Um, you know, I, I, I know I reached out to her senator, um, Senator Smucker and Representative Griner. Um, they both took an active interest in helping. They've done a great job for us. Um, and I, to me, I, I, we had to. I mean, you know, as much you know as we had said, it, it's it's painful. It's not easy to sit here and talk about it. But the reality of it is we're probably the best people or group of people to try to get out there from a, a standpoint of trying to get to your senators, to your reps, and, and share the tragedy and, and ask the, 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 about, you know, introducing bills, focusing on it, doing something from a legislative standpoint. So I, I think we kind of owed it to our daughter. Um, and truly, we don't want other people to go through this. As I know we've said in the past, right. there is no greater pain that we have experienced in our lives. And I, I do not know of anything worse than losing a child. You know, so every one of us that have, a, that have children, I mean, think about this, you know, that Christmas event or coming home from school or coming home if they're not at home. How was your day? How was your week? You know, how's college? How's high school? And birthdays, Christmas, those events change forever, and that's it, it's it, it's so dramatic. So enough said there. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR news and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Joining us today is Chris and Susan Demko, founders of Pennsylvania Parents Against Impaired Driving, and Eileen Lee, director of Ignition Interlock Quality Assurance with the Pennsylvania DUI Association. We're talking about drunk driving laws here in Pennsylvania. 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You also can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number is 1-800-729-7532. Before before we get into what was just recently signed into law by Governor Wolf, the Ignition Interlock Law, uh, what were you looking for when you decided to that you were going to become active in campaigning to come up with tougher laws here in Pennsylvania? What in particular were you, were you looking for as far as changes? Well, initially, it was more along the lines of getting the legislature to focus on DUI as a crisis and to take steps to reduce the number of deaths. So I think we first approach it, not experts, not trying to be experts, but just saying, please focus on it because we are the result of inadequate laws. Um, Right. We didn't know until Meredith was killed how bad the laws in Pennsylvania were or how lenient they were towards DUI. Yeah. So um, our we really turned what I would call some of the experts, such as Craig Stedman, um, Lancaster DA. Um, he was a great advocate, and he provided a lot of information and recommendations. We um, spoke with Matt a lot, and then we worked specifically through the legislators. I think from standpoint, 
we knew that the laws are inadequate. We knew that there's a lot of people on the road driving that shouldn't be driving. And then also, and it gets a little bit complicated in the sentencing world, but some of the penalties, some of the existing laws for those that kill while driving are really light, extremely light. And unless you have some specific nuances or events within your, your tragedy, um, people could walk away with a three-year sentence, including those that are repeats. And, you know, those that are repeats, they've, we feel that if you've been arrested multiple times or, let's say, convicted multiple times for DUI and you kill somebody, I don't, I don't believe three years is a, a fair penalty when they know what harm can be done by driving impaired, and yet they willingly do that. Uh, you know, so that, that's what some of the early things that we realized. So. Mm-hmm. And there are a number of proposals out there, and we'll talk about several of them uh, later in the program. But the one that was signed into law by Governor Wolf last month was that many, not all, but many first-time DUI offenders would have to have ignition interlocks installed in their cars that they would have to breathe into before uh, the the car would start. Eileen Lee from DUI Association, I remember having your colleagues on over the years talking about this. I mean, this is a proposal that has been around for a long time, but it never seemed to go anywhere. It never seemed to go anywhere. And I have to say that when this was passed a few weeks ago, it kind of came out of nowhere because it was one of those pieces of legislation, as I said, that been around for a long, long time. And all of a sudden, it passes the House, it passes the Senate, and Governor Wolf signs it into law. Pennsylvania was one of the last states to have it. What happened? Well, it was, a, it was a surprise to all of us um, that the law passed. Uh, it's been over 10 years that we've been waiting uh, for the legislation and, and the passage of the, the bill. So it was a, a, a very big surprise to all of us. Um, I think it's, uh, you know, the initiatives that are out there, um, the grassroots groups uh, that are, you know, approaching our legislators. I'm, I'm going to give them the credit uh, for this passage on this law. So this is a well, big event. Well, I, I, I kind of thought the same thing, is that, uh, you know, the, the Demkos uh, formed the group uh, Pennsylvania Parents Against Impaired Driving, and you had, um, you know, a number of other families that had also, also suffered losses at the hands of uh, drunk drivers. How did that kind of come together? And, I, again, I, I'm a, I have to say, like, I think Eileen, when she said she was surprised, I was, too. I mean, it got a lot of attention in Lancaster County when yeah. you, when the group would yes. meet. But it was like all of a sudden it got some momentum, and boom, here we have this law. Um. <laughs> well, and plus you have to realize that the core group were all parents. Right. It, it and, wasn't... And, and probably none of you were familiar with campaigning for no. legislation no. or no. anything like that. Yeah. No. Yeah. Um, I, I, I would say on the interlock bill, it, the letter that we wrote, you know, we, we, we immediately immersed ourselves in what's going on. And we've always admired MAD. You know, if you want to talk about a nonprofit that has changed society for the better, it's, it, I think it's a, a phenomenon. I've always felt highly of them in terms of how they were able to change the societal norms. Um, I, I remember going to the website and looking at, because you can go to their website and drill in the states, 
And that's where I saw the interlock legislation, what they were advocating. And so in our letter to the editor, we specifically said, you know, what the ask was they need to focus on uh, effective legislation, comprehensive. But the first ask was pass the interlock bill. You know, it's it, it, it's proven legislation. It's clearly going to save lives. And so from that, what happened was uh, Senator Smucker then had a hearing held at the Senate mm-hmm. in Lancaster where the primary focus of the hearing was to talk about the interlock. So um, I, I think what happened was that bill got a fair amount of push at the end of last session. And what happened was it then subsequently passed the Senate where it was introduced and it made its way to the House. And we were being told, in hindsight, unfortunately a little bit too optimistic, but there was a belief it was actually going to pass the House at the end of last session. Unfortunately, it died. Um, however, then, then you fast forward to the current session. It was introduced again by Senator Rafferty. It quickly moved it out of the Senate, made its way over to the House. Um, I, I think what happened was it got bogged down in the House because of budget issues, as we all know about. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> you probably had several stories about uh, Just that. a few, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> so, it, you know, it, it was there. I. I, I think if I had to guess, I, I think our group was kind of the the push. You know, we were the group that added a face to it. Right. Mad was doing it, but you know, Mad is still. I think people could perceive them as a special interest group, versus you know, a group a, the, of parents that actually went to Harrisburg, made appointments with your senator, make an appointment with your rep, and go talk to them and share your tragedies. Right. I mean, they had to look at all of us. Straight in the eye. And straight in the eye and think, if some of these laws were in place, would we even be meeting today? Mm. So, Eileen, let's provide a little bit of uh, logistical information here. How does this device work? Well, just to let you know, we have right now in the Commonwealth, we have over 7,000 individuals with interlocks in their vehicle. And basically Those what it were does, not first-time offenders. That's though. correct. These right. are all second and right. subsequent offenders. Right. And, and basically the way that it works is the individual has to provide a breath sample before they can start the vehicle. If there is a, a .025% of alcohol in the system, it will not allow the vehicle to start. What it'll do is it'll go into a, a lockout. It'll give uh, a five-minute time frame and allow them to give another sample. And until that sample is under a .025, the vehicle's not going to be going anywhere. Okay, I'm more curious about something. .25, because in Pennsylvania, blood alcohol is .08. Right. To be considered uh, legally uh, legally drunk. Right, the legal per se level for driving under the influence is .08. However, with the interlock, it's set at a much lower level, .025. Um, I want to say we can equate that to maybe a drink, a little over a drink. Okay. So it will not allow the vehicle to start. All right. Got a phone call here, and it's kind of disturbing, actually. Uh, Gary's in Juniata County. Gary, you're on the air. Yeah, first of all, I just I can sit here and just say I can't even imagine the pain that these people have suffered through, and I really deeply, I, I can't say I'm sorry enough. I mean, it just... It's just very heartfelt, and I can't imagine how they can get through this. But anyway, my son is a lead singer of a band, and it's called The End of Silence, and it really is. It's the heavy metal headbanger, but he has to play in a lot of nightclubs. And he actually had a young man come up to him 
I don't know if it works or not, but he had a young man come up to him, and he's thinking he's asking, you know, going to give him a high five or thank him for the set or whatever it is. He asked him to go out in his car and breathe in this machine so that he could start his car because he knew he legally wouldn't be able to start his car. And the other point I wanted to make is I understand how people get really squeamish about this. There is something to be said about public shaming. If, if newspapers would publish pictures and say this person is a drunk driver who's caused a hit-and-run accident, it might make some other people wake up because... You know, they don't want to see their picture in the paper. It's not just a name. It has to be a picture, and it has to be some type of public shaming. And I apologize, but these people deserve it. Mm. Thank you very much. Hey, Gary, thanks for your call. Eileen, does it work? I'm going to tell you that the interlocks do work. It doesn't allow the vehicle to start. However, there are individuals that are out there asking other people to provide breath samples. What we have to do is rely on law enforcement. We had an incident a uh, few years ago in Dauphin County, actually, uh, where a gentleman was having his 15-year-old daughter supply the breath sample in the ignition interlock. Thankfully, she notified the authorities. He was subsequently arrested and incarcerated for that. The daughter did? The, the daughter wow. notified the authorities, the 15-year-old <laughs> daughter. Yeah. Um, I laugh at that just because he got what was coming to him, but, you know... You know, in Pennsylvania, we do not utilize cameras. A lot of the states do utilize the cameras. Uh, Pennsylvania at this point is not utilizing. That's not to say that that's going to, uh, you know, come up in the near future as a consideration. Mm. Uh, it sounds like it's not foolproof, but, and it also sounds like, and what make, can make you angry about what Gary just described is, here's a guy who didn't get it. You know, there's a reason that that ignition interlock was installed on your car but yet you're still out drinking and you're still going to drive a car so there's a guy that just does not understand the seriousness of of what he has done i'm going to add something else into it and just so you you know that with these interlock devices it's not just a question of uh taking a breath and and providing a sample blowing into the device the individuals have to be trained on how to provide the device uh, right now we have eight interlock vendors in the Commonwealth, and uh, they, when they give a sample of breath, it's a combination of not only a, a, a breath, but oftentimes uh, they have to make a humming sound, and sometimes they're required to do a like a suck back. So not just anybody can walk up and just start to blow into it, because it won't accept the sample. It'll abort it. Mm-hmm. So there are some safeguards and some circumvention um, you know, out there to stop individuals from doing it. Mm-hmm. I, I saw you writing a notes to yourself. Was there something you wanted to mention, Susan? Um, no, I had, we had just talked about the interlock and the possibility of cameras um, because with the interlock, people try to even do like a vacuum or something to make it um, start. So this was something else that has been thrown around. Good. And again, just to add, there are uh, the vendors... Um, you know, there's certain circumvention techniques that are actually built right into the interlock devices that, that don't allow non-human uh, breath. So if someone tries to introduce a non-human breath, such as um, air, like an air compressor, right. it, it won't accept it. Right. Uh, see, I, I have to admit, I was thinking of a dog or something like that, so <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad you mentioned a machine. So, go ahead, and, Chris. You know, one other thing, and, and I, 
We've realized over the, I'll say, two years that we've been, approaching two years that we've been active doing this, is that you are going to get people saying, well, you know, they get someone else to do it. So it's, it's like they build on excuses to say, well, don't do it. We're not going to do it because it's not going to be effective. Um, MED came out with results this year that really are eye-opening. Um, just looking at PA stat, although they did it across the country, since the interlock was introduced in 2003 for repeat offenders, in the state of Pennsylvania, it has stopped 78,000 drivers from driving impaired on the interlock. So even if you get some people that circumvent it somehow, the fact is, is over the, over the life of the interlock for repeat offenders, it's prevented 78,000 instances. instances. That, that, to me, is dramatic. And I just want to share, um, last year, we, we gather uh, at PADY, we gather statistics from the interlock companies. So we were able to show that in 2015, we had over 56 million sober miles driven. I think that's very significant. Yeah. But what I always look at and what stays with me is that we had 50, over 53,000 attempts by individuals to start the vehicle with alcohol in their system and the vehicle would not start. How do you know that? I mean, does it record it? It absolutely does. There's actually data that's kept on every individual. So every time they give a breath sample, um, there's data that shows the time, uh, what the breath sample was. Now, they don't see that but it's on a data log and, and we have access to that. And we require the companies to report all of that data. Mm. Now, let's talk about the numbers a little bit. I, you know, I, had saw, I saw a statistic that said that the Pennsylvania State Police had arrested 18,000 people for DUI in 2015, and that was up 6%. Now, that's just Pennsylvania State Police. That's not uh, the, across the state with the local police departments. Uh, and that also, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, but that uh, those driving under the influence of drugs, the arrests were up 43% by uh, state police. All right, so Eileen, the question I have for the, the increased number of arrests, does that mean that there are more drunk drivers on the road, or does that mean that state police are just arresting more? I'm gonna say that law enforcement is more aggressive. They're better trained. Uh, the Pennsylvania State Police, with their uh, you know their programs uh, for you know detecting drugs and drivers, um, is just excellent. And and I want to say that the arrests are up because of that, because of that aggressive enforcement mm -hmm. and the Chris, training. Chris, we were talking a little bit about this before the show. Society has changed, and I think one of the things you mentioned, Mad Mothers Against Drunk Driving, that uh, and they're one of the main reasons behind this. But 30 years ago, my father was a police officer, and I used to hear police officers all the time say, you know, if you caught someone, unless they were you know, slobbering drunk, something like that, you'd say, can you make it home? Now, if they were smoking dope, that was a different story. You were going to jail. Things have completely changed today. Now police officers don't look at this as like, oh, boys will be boys, and uh, he's had a few drinks, he can make it home. Now it is viewed as a serious crime. So society does view this much differently. Yes, and you know, the, the adding on to the, uh, the, the, the context of uh, police and enforcement, um, there was a survey done by Wild Hub last year that ranked all the states for DUI uh, laws and the strictness. Pennsylvania was ranked 49th. Now, the one thing that they ranked Pennsylvania well on 
was kind of the sobriety checkpoint. So it sounds like to me, and I don't know if you would agree, but the, as from an enforcement standpoint, in terms of arresting, we're doing a good job. I, I think what's happening is the rest of the, the process for dealing with DUI, the laws and what do you do with them, that appears to be where the weaknesses are. And, and you know, if you look at our state compared to all the other states, there's a lot of bills, there's a lot of things that we're not doing um, as, as effective as other states. So, you know, to me, that's kind of transition to some of the other things yeah, we're talking we're about. Talk about this, um, so. Yeah, so the, the point is, there's a lot of still bad things going on in this state that they need to improve. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, it lies with the legislators. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Smart Talk. We're talking about Pennsylvania's drunk driving laws today. Our guest, Chris and Susan Demko, founders of Pennsylvania Parents Against Impaired Driving, and Eileen Lee, Director of Ignition Interlock Quality Assurance with the Pennsylvania DUI Association. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You also can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number is one 800 729 7532. Just wanted to mention this from an email or a call we had from one of our listeners that, um, let me just get to it so I can read the entire thing here, but said that uh, the gist of uh, what Bernie had to say is that he thinks that texting and calling on cell phones is as dangerous as DUI. He had a family member injured in a texting related accident. Actually, I think that uh, the research has shown that it is as dangerous, if not more dangerous than sometimes. Is this something that the DUI Association is involved in? Because it's not typically, I mean, it's not traditionally driving under the influence of alcohol or drugs, but it is the same thing. Absolutely. That, the Pennsylvania DUI Association is involved in a lot of different programs. Uh, we do a lot of programs for the youth, uh, you know, the SAD program. We do a lot of education for our uh, highway safety facilitators and of course the educational law enforcement and it is it's it's one of the top traffic safety issues in the commonwealth mm -hmm. the distracted driving uh texting um you know driving under the influence individuals not wearing seat belts so these are all areas that we concentrate to get you know um education out there to uh to all the stakeholders are texting while driving laws do they need to be stronger Absolutely. Um, I mean, we do have, you know, the no texting uh, while driving, and I, I really yeah, don't have but those that's numbers. Kind of, yeah, but it's kind of, I mean, it's, what, 25 bucks or something like that? I'm not, that I don't even know what the fine is for yeah. that, but uh, we need to be more aggressive with that. And, and of course, we still don't have a law in place uh, that doesn't allow us to do the, you know, uh, to require hands-free as far as uh, talking on the telephone which is just as distracting mm -hmm. as, as texting. So, you know, at the risk of sounding like uh, a nag or a nanny, don't do it, you know? <laughs> it uh, drives me nuts when I saw I see people, you know, okay, on the phone's one thing, but texting while driving just drives me nuts. By the way, someone's cell phone is ringing here. I just heard it. <laughs> That's kind of ironic. No, no big deal. All right, let's talk about some of the other laws. Um, there are a number of proposals out there. Uh, Susan, Chris, were you satisfied that we just got the ignition interlock law passed? 
No. <laughs> I had a feeling that would be your answer. <laughs> yeah, that was a, to me that was the first step. It deals with the the initial offender, and it, it doesn't deal with the repeat offenders, which have been the cause of some of the worst tragedies, including ours. Mm-hmm. And, and and if I can add one thing to kind of put it in context, um, I recently got some information through um, Senator Rafferty's office. There are currently 140,000 individuals currently on suspended license in the state of Pennsylvania due to DUI. Out of the 140, 72,000 are the repeat offenders. Now, there's studies that have been done in the past from a national level that, level that would indicate between 50 and 75 percent of drivers on a suspended license will continue to drive. So what that equates to in the state of Pennsylvania, probably somewhere between 32 and 50,000 individuals will continue to drive on a suspended license when they've been convicted repeatedly. That they're the, they're the worst offenders. And I think from our group, that's one of our primary focuses right now, because they're the ones that the interlock bill, the new interlock bill is not going to help. And these people continue to drive. And I could sit here and share countless articles, countless stories of people that continue to get killed in the state of Pennsylvania or these people that get arrested seven, eight, nine times or convicted for DUI. So that's in context. What are you looking for uh, legislative-wise? you know, we've approached the legislators from the standpoint that individually, they introduce a lot of bills. Uh, there are currently over 18 DUI bills out there in the current session, and they touch on all kinds of things. Um, some of the bills that are out there that we support would be, for example, Senate Bill 607. That bill talks about forfeiture, which right now is a dirty word in Harrisburg, and it also talks about creating a felony status. And that's one of the things you will hear a lot about. We were some of the few, I I think maybe there's uh, one of five states that does not have a felony concept for repeat DUI offenders. That's all, all of them. You can get you can get arrested twenty times. It's never a felony. But the 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 example that people like Craig Stedman have said, you can go to Walmart. Lancaster County. That's, yeah. Yes, um, you can go into a Walmart on three occasions and steal three candy bars. That is a felony. But yet you can get arrested twenty times for DUI, and it's never a felony. Again, we're one of five states. And so there's several bills out there that would make it a felony generally at three times. So you have Senate Bill 607. You got um, Senate Bill 776. You have Senate Bill 839. And our representative, we've been told, is about to introduce another felony bill in the House that would create a felony status at three. So that's one of, I'll call it the low-hanging fruit. So you you think that's very important that uh, these DUIs be upgraded from multiple DUIs to felony status? Yes, because they're the worst offenders. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to add another piece on interlock. And I I, I think one of the most important things to remember with the ignition interlock is uh, behavioral modification. Uh, You know, we want individuals to change. And the only way that we're going to get that change is to get them not to drink and drive. And this is just one tool that we use. One of the really nice things about the new law is that it allows the individual both the subsequent offender and the first-time offender to get the ignition interlock installed on a vehicle faster. 
right now with our second and subsequent offenses, the individual still has to do what we call that hard suspension for one year. And they're not eligible to get the interlock until after that one year. With this new bill, it allows the first-time offender to immediately get the ignition interlock device, which immediately is going to start that behavioral modification. Mm -hmm. And it allows the second and subsequent offender, after a short suspension, six months, to get the interlock. So that was a real important piece that I think oftentimes we let out. Um, in reference to some of the other initiatives, when we talk about the driving under um, a DUI-related suspension, there is a bill, um, right now it's, it's House Bill 1861, mm -hmm. that basically develops a tier penalty system for those individuals that are driving on suspended driver's license. Again, we're gonna rely on our enforcement. If they're arrested for the first offense, it's gonna require a 90-day term in incarceration. The second offense is gonna require six months incarceration. And a third offense requires two years. That's significant. Mm. We have a very similar law right now, but the law that we have in place now has those enhanced penalties if there's alcohol in the system. This eliminates that. Let's take some phone calls here because we do have a few people who want to talk about behavior modification. Emily is in Lancaster. Emily, you're on the air. Hi. Um, I was concerned because the ignition interlock system that's now been approved really would not have um, prevented the death of your guest's uh, daughter because the person involved had borrowed a car that presumably would not have had the ignition interlock. And also he was on heroin, so even if he wasn't drunk, he still would have been impaired. And as far as I understand it, the, inter the ignition interlock does not detect uh, heroin yeah. in the system. So um, w what steps are being taken to avoid those situations? Thank you very much for your call, and sh she's right. She's right that it wouldn't have prevented this case. From what I understand from, I've read quotes from the two of you, that this is step one in your mind, right? Yes. Correct. Okay. So those felonies, what would have prevented Meredith's crash? Um, obviously, in hindsight, we can't say. We don't know. But the, the reality of it is the interlock will save lives. It's proven. It, it's been proven in a, a lot of other states. So for us to say, okay, it wouldn't save Meredith, but it's going to save future lives. So to me, that, that's enough said. Um, what could have saved Meredith? Uh, I don't know if maybe the individual should have spent more time in jail. Um, Had he been in jail? Uh, I do not think that it, it probably, the first offense probably was your typical first offense, and I'll say a slap on the wrist. Um, I, I'm assuming he took advantage of ARD, but I, I believe he didn't complete it. Um, so, you know, it's, it's hard to say what will save lives, um, but the reality of it is additional laws will address the repeat offenders, and there's got to be a bigger penalty. And not that we're not out here sitting there and saying you throw them in jail and lock, you know, I mean, throw away the key. But the reality of it is there is a subset of individuals out there that truly need to be incarcerated because they will never learn. There was a woman just killed last year in upstate by Wilkes-Barre, 31-year-old mother jogging during the day, and this individual that was drunk midday time, repeat DUI in his history, hit and run, killed her, and he was just sentenced. I, I think he got 
six. Uh, hold on a second. He, his sentence was really light. Um, let me take seven to 16 years. So here's a guy who's a repeat, really bad guy, and he gets a seven to 16 year, which means he'll be out in seven years unless he screws up in prison. Mm-hmm. Eileen, I wanted to, to touch on something that uh, I had mentioned before, but their caller also mentioned. Uh, we here at WITF have done a lot of work on uh, the proliferation of opioids, uh, you know, prescription drugs, uh, painkillers, but especially heroin. We are in a crisis situation in the state right now and across the country with uh, so many people using heroin. And that 43% increase in state police arresting people under the influence of drugs, part of that tells me it's because we've had such an increase in the use of, of those drugs. What can be done about that? I mean, I know that George Geisler with DUI Association is, is someone who is trained in, in training police officers to detect people who are under the influence of drugs. But what about it? I mean, you don't want to say it's all new, but the proliferation is new. Um, I'm just going to add that you're right. Uh, from a law enforcement standpoint, our numbers are up because our law enforcement officers are really well trained in detecting it. When we look at the interlocks, and, and, and the caller was absolutely correct, right now it's alcohol specific. We're very limited in being able to detect drugs, but there's hope. The interlock companies, along with the auto industry, are, are very proactive in trying to develop um, ways to be able to detect drugs, things uh, such as what we call pupillometers, where before the individual can start the car, you know, it, it's going to measure and, det- and detect drugs. The other thing that's out there is, is the transdermal uh, swabs or, or the saliva testing. Unfortunately, that's not going to stop the individual from, uh, from operating the vehicle. But I'm going to add something in here. The interlock, along with a lot of the other initiatives that we have in the Commonwealth, and I'm going to say drug courts. Right now in the Commonwealth, we have 24 counties that operate DUI and drug courts. And, and they, they consist of a combination of a team of individuals that are going to work with that, that individual. Um, a judge, probation, treatment. So in combination, a lot of these initiatives, I think, are really going to make positive change. But we're not there yet with the interlock device being able to detect drugs. All right, let's take a, another phone call here from Lisa in Harrisburg. Lisa, you're on the air. Hi, I'm calling um, because this is a topic of very, very personal concern, and I'm so glad that you're addressing it. I'm not an expert, and I'm not calling with a solution, um, but I know a lot of people who have um, driven after dry, or after drinking, and at the time that they drove, they were in complete denial about their condition. Um, none of them set out to to be unsafe. Not, that was never anybody's goal. And they do that because they're alcoholics. Um, they do it because they have a disease. And um, it sounds crazy because you're talking about people who do it, they get um, some kind of small consequence, and then they do it again. And, they, and that's crazy because they are crazy. That means by definition, it's a disease, it's an illness that causes us to think unclearly and so um, I just want to say first of all you're right on just teaching them something they're not going to learn their brains just don't work that way Um, I just think it's sad that in our culture 
we don't understand this disease concept well enough to understand that it's not only um, a consequence situation, I mean, a situation where we should give consequences. We also have to take a look long-term at researching addiction mm. and how people people's brains work right. with addiction, what we can do with that, and then certainly educate people about the disease of alcoholism globally. We're teaching a lot of young folks about the, the what happens when they drink and drive, but we're not teaching people in the whole community that alcoholism is a disease that needs to be treated as such. Lisa, thank you very much for your call. And I'm sure that uh, Lisa is not uh, talking about that as an excuse for it, but she's right that many of uh, the people who are repeat offenders have a dependency problem. Um, what does the law say, Eileen, about someone who is an alcoholic or, you know, has, is addicted to alcohol or drugs if they have been arrested for a DUI? Well, there are pieces in place with the law that mandates individuals that have um, multiple offenses or high BACs to receive drug and alcohol assessments, and they're mandated to treatment. So we have those things in place, but I'm going to go back to the drug courts. That's their focus. Um, this team with the treatment people, the probation, the judge, that's the focus, to work with these hardcore drinking drivers. Mm -hmm. But as you said, only 24 counties have uh, those courts right now. Right? That's correct. But it is spreading because it has it shown there has been success in, in those counties. And fortunately, we have several here in, uh, in central Pennsylvania. I think Lancaster County has one. If, I know Cumberland County Cumberland has Cumberland County. Yes. Right, yeah. Um, we only have a minute left. And I want to thank all three of you for being here today. I think that... Uh, uh, the, the story that you told about Meredith, unfortunately, um, will wake a lot of people up in hearing this. But at the same time, you are to be commended and your group for campaigning. Who knows how many lives you've saved with with what yes. you've done uh, over over the past uh, two years. And it looks as though you'll comp continue to campaign yes. for more. What's your next step in about 30 seconds? Okay, <laughs> uh, we, we were up on uh, up at the Capitol about two weeks ago meeting with senators because there are a lot of bills sitting in the Senate that made their way out of the House. So the goal right now is to focus the Senate on some of these bills that we are advocating, such as the felony bill. And what doesn't get past this session, we're moving forward next session. Mm. Uh, Chris and Susan Demko, thank you very much for being with us today. I know that takes it takes a lot of courage to be able to come on here and, and talk about this. And thank you for having yes, us. Thank you. Also, Eileen Lee, Director of Ignition Interlock Quality Assurance with the Pennsylvania DUI Association. Eileen, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Coming up on tomorrow's program, we're talking about housing in central Pennsylvania. I don't know if you've tried to rent an apartment lately, but uh, it costs a lot. And uh, there are a lot of, you know, there are a lot of aspects of this, but that's our discussion on tomorrow's show.